cut. Let's just pray, and we'll, we'll, we'll begin. Uh, Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day. We thank you for your word. Lord, as, uh, as I study and meditate and, and reflect on the gospel of Matthew, Lord, I'm just, uh, I'm just gaining a deeper appreciation for this work. Um, Lord, I thank you for how you uh, used Matthew to pen uh, this account of the life of Christ. And so, Father, as we uh, continue through this uh, journey of studying Christ uh, through the lens of Matthew, through this, uh, this Jewish eye, Father, I pray that you would help us uh, to truly um, understand as best we are able, uh, Lord, the majesty of Christ, um, that Jesus is indeed the Christ, that he is the Messiah, Lord, that he fulfilled all of these promises and demonstrated his authority to us in a way that we could have confidence uh, to place our faith in him. Uh, Lord, we come to you, Lord, uh, distracted with life and busyness and and so, Lord, we ask that you would uh, calm our minds, open our hearts, Lord, that the word would be able to, uh, to, to really sink in and ultimately that we would draw closer to you. Father, we ask that your spirit would guide us today. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. Matthew chapter, one, Matthew chapter 9, verse 1. Getting into a boat, Jesus crossed over the sea and came to his own city. And they brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. Seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralytic, Take courage, son, your sins are forgiven. And some of the scribes said to themselves, This fellow blasphemes. And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why are you thinking evil in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Then he said to the paralytic, Get up, pick up your bed, and go home. And he got up and went home. But when the crowd saw this, they were awestruck and glorified God, who had given such authority to men. And Father, we do thank you for your word. Lord, we do ask that you would help us now as we study this passage. Uh, give us clarity, uh, help us to understand the implications. Lord, help us uh, to apply the principles that are found in this passage to our own lives. Lord, we ask that you would help us um, to fall more in love with you, that we would be more committed to you. Uh, Lord, that we would um, uh, just follow you, Lord, in faith. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. Okay, so this passage is, this, uh, Matthew has been building, um, in many ways, I see this passage as sort of like like a, a, one of the high points. It's not the high point, but it's kind of in this opening segment, uh, Matthew has been building this case, demonstrating that Jesus is indeed the Messiah. Uh, virtually all of the New Testament writers are Jewish. Luke would be the exception. Um, but Matthew truly highlights that, that he is writing to a Jewish audience. His gospel begins uh, very blandly from a non-Jewish perspective uh, concerning the genealogy of Jesus. To a, to a Jewish person, this is critical because if, this, if the genealogy doesn't meet the requirements, then there's no purpose even going any further. And so Matthew starts with this genealogy showing who Jesus is. Uh, he begins to show how prophetically 
that as Jesus entered the scene, that, the, that Malachi, uh, many prophecies there are now fulfilled through John the Baptist coming on scene, announcing that the Messiah was, was there. And he begins to unfold his teaching, showing his authority. We've seen his, his miraculous works over um, things like the healing of the leper, the, the healing of the centurion's servant, uh, the healing of Peter's mom, uh, mother-in-law, the uh, the exorcism of these demons that were on this these two men um, on the other side of the lake, and now we come to this paralytic, and really in verse two, this is uh, the jugular vein of Christianity. This is what separates Christianity from all other faiths, all other religions, and 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 sets us apart. Verse two, Jesus says, "Take courage, son." Your sins are forgiven. This is a huge, huge statement. Um, and from this story, I found, I'll talk about it more. I probably should hold off, but, but, but it's fascinating that Matthew leads with this story. And then the very next story that comes is the calling of Matthew. Um, he speaks in the third person, but the, the man who is writing this account follows this story to, to his calling and his decision to follow after Christ. It's really powerful. And so we begin in verse 1. Uh, getting into a boat, Jesus crossed over the sea and came to his own city. Last week we covered this briefly. Jesus, uh, it, it was evening time. He said to the disciples, hey, let's go to the other side of the lake. There would have been um, apprehension on their part because the other side of the lake, this was a Gentile country. It was a Decapolis. This was uh, where uh, pagan worship sort of thrived. Um, no self-respecting Jewish man would want to go over uh, to that side of the lake. And so they get in a boat. Uh, they leave the crowds. Uh, somewhere in the middle of the night, a storm kicks up. They're panicked. They think they're going to die. Uh, Matthew uses the strongest language for this incident um, I believe it's probably because he's the, the one non-fisherman in the, in the group. And so he's way more terrified than the guys who grew up on the lake fishing. But they're terrified as well in their accounts. And Jesus just speaks. And he tells the, the environment to stop it. Um, the, the elements calm down. And instantly the waters calm down, which is sort of a second miracle. Because you could stop the elements, but it's going to take a while for the water. But everything's just calm. And you're like... What man is this? And sort of the, the essence is there. The implication is that he's not a man. He's got to be God. Then they're met on the other side of the lake. And as they're met, they're, they're met by these two uh, demon-possessed men who, in the other accounts where they only record one man, the man who uh, we think had a tremendous impact for the gospel. But these were guys who, they, they couldn't chain him down. They were living in a graveyard. They had been cutting themselves. Nobody could pass them. And Jesus basically sends the demons out. The demons go into the pigs. The pigs go into the water. They all die. And the demons continued living somewhere else. They, they weren't, the demons weren't destroyed. And then the city sees these two men who they know have been sort of damaged for years. These two guys were a problem for their community. And they come down and they see these men. And the other accounts, it says, to, uh, I think it's in Luke. It says that they saw this demon-possessed man in his right mind and clothed. 
because he was naked. These two guys are naked. Another bring, you know, help you kind of bring the image alive. And yet they said, get out of here, Jesus. You destroyed our economy. We care more about our economy than we care about these two guys. And so they get in the boat and then they head back. Um, I, I, I'm starting with verse one because as I sort of separated out the chapter, I'm like, okay, it's kind of the end of the story. Um, but then this week, as I'm studying, I'm like, I should have really just totally kept verse one last week. Uh, it's a reminder, though, that as we're reading the scriptures, the chapter and verses are not inspired by God. They are, it's a great tool to help us navigate the Bible to find our way around that we can, I can say, hey, we're in Matthew chapter nine, verse one today, and we can all flip over, open our Bibles in a matter of seconds and get there. But, but they're not inspired. And I would suggest that this verse probably should be, verse one should be the last verse in chapter eight. And we will see that more. We need to remember that Matthew's account is not a chronological account of events in Jesus's life. Matthew is from a Jewish perspective, is building the strongest case to authenticate that this Jesus who claimed to be the Messiah is actually the Messiah. And so he's piecing his stories together. Uh, we'll see, and I'll show you in a little bit, um, that this story today about the paralytic man if you go to a, a harmony of the Gospels, if you Google it, some Bibles have in the back a harmonization of the Gospels that sort of put all the stories. Uh, in chronological order, today's story actually fits right after the story of the leper that was healed for us a couple weeks ago. And then the next couple of stories, the calling of Matthew, they sort of fall in chronological order, but Matthew has his point. He's not giving us a, a, a log book of events. He is pulling stories from Jesus' life to show to the Jewish audience that this man, Jesus, fulfilled prophecy. So we see getting on a boat, Jesus crossed over the sea, came to his own city. I want to pause here. Where's his own city? Jesus' hometown is Nazareth. Can you go from one side of the Sea of Galilee to Nazareth? You can't. Nazareth is a few miles away up in a hill. Uh, um, but in the Gospels, we see that Jesus was run out of his town um, a prophet has no respect in his hometown. And he settled in Capernaum, the, the sort of headquarters that became Jesus's home. And so Matthew, I think, is tying the stories together. He's kind of getting the reader back uh, in location to Capernaum, which is on the north uh, northwest. It's like if it was a clock, about 11 o'clock on, on an old-fashioned clock is where Capernaum would be if the lake is a clock. Um, and then he gets into verse two and he says, and they brought him, they, they, and they brought to him a paralytic laid on a bed. This one sentence fascinates me. Matthew's given us the total cliff notes of this whole account. He just goes right to the, the heart of the issue, leaves off all frill, all of the drama of the story. He goes, they, they brought him a they brought to him a paralytic lying on the bed, seeing their faith. Jesus said, it just kind of moves on. Were, were they on the, the beach when this happened? Did they just land on the beach when this happened? Or how, how did this all, Matthew, why don't you fill us in on the story? And this is why we need to go to the other accounts to, to help fill in the gaps. And so in Mark chapter 2, the first two verses, this is what we read. Uh, we read, when he, Jesus, had come back to Capernaum several days afterward, 
Um, so if we were to follow that story, at the very end of chapter 1, we see that he just healed the leper. Uh, he's, been, he's in Capernaum. It's a couple days ha- have elapsed. It was heard that he was at home. Uh, the thought is that he was staying at Peter's home. We know that Peter had a home right there, um, likely accommodated Jesus. It wasn't his own home, but it was Peter's home is what everybody believes. And, says, and many were gathered together so that there was no longer room, not even near the door, and he was speaking the word to them. Um, so in this home, I, I don't know if we're talking tens of people, like 50, 60 people. This wasn't a huge place. The, the homes during then were often sort of laid out in two stories. There would have been the downstairs where like the, the, the kitchen would be uh, where they would sort of do life. And then there would have been the upper room, which we hear about, like a lot of the upper room discourse. There would be a second story that would be just more of a, a, an open space where you could sleep, you could gather people. It wouldn't be cluttered. And then you'd have the third level, which is the roof. Uh, the Mediterranean, uh, this, this part of Israel or all of Israel really is a beautiful, very much like California. Uh, we don't even have to take into consideration weather. Like if we're taking weather into consideration, it's normally heat. Oh, it might be too hot to do something outside. But they could just, the, the, to, the top floor was just sort of their patio overlooking the lake. And they, would, they could have, you know, their iced tea and whatever they were doing and just enjoy life up there. So the thought is that in this story, in the huge crowd, that Jesus is in the, the upper room, that everybody, it's packed out. The, everything is over, like if there was a fireman with coding, that he would have been super upset at what had what was happening here because they're spilling out the stairs. It says at the front door, there's so many people crowded in trying to, to see Jesus. Um, and Jesus is teaching. Um, so back to Matthew. And they brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. So we know that Jesus is teaching. There's a big crowd. And then we're introduced to this they. That they, whoever that is, Matthew doesn't tell us who they is anywhere in this. Who's the they? And they brought to him, we know that's Jesus. It's capital H in most Bibles, so that's an easy giveaway. But we can follow that. We know we can read up and see that he's talking about Jesus. A paralytic. And so we know that the, the they brought this paralytic to Jesus. Who is this they? So going back to Mark chapter 2, we read, And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. So right there is a clue. This is all we're going to learn about them is that the they is four men were carrying this paralytic. Being unable to get to him, that's Jesus, because of the crowd they removed the roof above him. And when they had dug an opening, they let down the pallet, which the paralytic was lying. Moving on to Luke uh, chapter 5, verses 18 through about 19. Luke gives the account like this. And some men were carrying on a bed a man who was paralyzed. And they were trying to bring him in and set him down at the, in front of him. That's Jesus. But not finding any way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up to the roof and let him down through the tiles with his stretcher into the middle of the crowd in front of Jesus. This is a fascinating story. Like Matthew just tells us, and they brought to him a paralytic light in a bed. 
But Matthew doesn't care about all this. He's trying to point us to Jesus. Like he's trying to, his emphasis is who is Jesus? Matthew's whole point is Jesus has authority over sin, that Jesus can forgive sin. All of this other stuff is a side issue. But I want us to sort of think about these, these four guys. How did, this, how did this story develop? How paralyzed is this guy? The fact that it's four guys leads me to believe that this, this guy is more like a, a, a quadriplegic, so that it's a neck down sort of paralyzation from a, a waist down sort of thing. I'm thinking if it was a waist down sort of thing and the guy had control of his hands, it would be way easier with just two guys to, to have him hold on and then to carry him like this. But if the guy doesn't have use of his arms, it's a much harder situation. And so putting him on a pallet or something hard that four guys can sort of carry him in is, is, is a much greater, um, it's, it's far easier. So, so somewhere along the lines, I believe that this paralytic was friends with these four guys. He knows that Jesus is in town. The word about Jesus has spread. Thousands of people have come into Jesus. And I, it seems to be that this paralytic is totally just speculation. Somehow pleaded with these four guys, please take me to Jesus. I need to get there. I can't get there on my own. I need you. And so these four guys, they pick him up. They say, I don't know where they came from. We don't know how far they had to travel, but they carried this guy to where Jesus was. They get there and they just see the crowd spilling out over everywhere. Like, I, I don't remember the last time I was in a crowd like this, but normally my reaction would be, sorry, bro, we're out here. I don't do crowds. The last time I willingly did a crowd that I remember was, I think it was three years ago when Chick-fil-A had the big brouhaha. And I'm like, I'm going to Chick-fil-A. And I stood in Chick-fil-A line for like four hours to get a chicken sandwich. And I wanted to quit so bad, but I was like, no, I want to, I'm going to support Chick-fil-A. So I kind of get the, the feeling that this is what they were they're like, okay, man, we can, we'll, like, I, I see desperation. We'll, we'll get you there. We'll, like, we'll do what we can do. And to get to the third level, often, there's two th- possibilities for how they got him to the third roof. Uh, most houses had an external staircase that you could walk up. Uh, this location is pretty into the city, and so the houses are kind of stacked up. Sometimes, um, on the rooftops, all of the patios were connected so they could go up, they could find their way up one and then they could walk across to get to where they needed to go. However they got up there, they get up to the location where they're above Jesus. I don't know if it was empty up there. I don't know what the situation is, but these guys are like, well, based on the building, I think that this is where Jesus is. And so let's, what accounts is they remove some tiles some said they started digging, so maybe they removed tiles and they had to kind of dig through the ground, like dig through to get to wherever uh, Jesus is. I can't even imagine distraction. Like, how would you, re- like, imagine that you're there. I'm not Jesus. I don't have, like, this isn't, but I know how easily people are distracted. Somebody coughs, kid cries, something like we have like, we don't have the attention span. And here's Jesus. These people are there. And did like drywall start falling from the ceiling, like on Jesus's hair. Did Jesus keep teaching? Did he just ignore it? Like he's God. He knows what's happening. Like I, they, I don't think that this surprised Jesus, but everybody else is like looking like all of a sudden light punches through. Like what, what is happening? 
I could like, how would you react if you were in that crowd? Would you be getting upset? Like, who is like, who is this? What are they doing? (laughs) Is Peter getting ticked off? Hey, that's my house, man. Like, right. What are you doing? You're cutting a hole in my roof. I like to me, if it was me, like if I was in Jesus's shoes and I start seeing somebody cutting through here, I'm so paranoid. I'm thinking we're under attack. I get nervous if I see somebody walk in the door and it's not starting time and they start looking through the glass. I start thinking, okay, something's not something's not right here. I've never been in a situation where drywall is falling on me and people up there like, "Uh oh, this isn't good. But clearly there's this disruption. I don't, I can't imagine what the people are thinking. But eventually the hole opens up enough, and I, and I don't know how tall the, the, the roof was, like the ceiling part was above the patio up there. It, 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 you read some accounts, and it, it sounds like they were able to maybe like lower him down. Maybe two guys jumped down and said, okay, hoist him down sort of thing. But eventually, somehow they go from the roof to getting the paralyzed guy straight at Jesus' feet. And the reaction that we see from Jesus is this. Let's go back, verse 2. And they brought to him a paralytic laying on a bed. Seeing their faith, Jesus says something to them, or to the paralytic. He addresses the paralytic. He doesn't talk about the other four guys. And so we see right away that Jesus observes the situation, this interruption, this distraction. He responds so kindly. He sees their faith. He sees the motive behind what they're doing. How do you see somebody's faith? Barclay says this. um, It may not be the best in some language to say that Jesus saw their faith, but rather that he observed or perceived or realized how much faith they had. So, so I think what it says, Jesus seeing their faith, like, man, I got all of these people here. This paralyzed guy literally drops in front of me at my feet. This takes an amazing amount of faith to, to go to this extent. They have no idea how this is, how, how, how Jesus is going to respond, how the crowds are going to respond. He's like, well, we drop him at his feet. Like, he's paralyzed. They're going to have to carry him. Like, it's not going to be easy for them to run him off. As I think about their seeing their faith, I begin to, uh, this question, you know, it's something for you to think about. How far will your faith take you before your embarrassment or your concern for other people stops you in your tracks? I am, um, you know, Friday night, it sort of dawned on me, like in hindsight, we were at Mission Bay. And we did not have exclusive rights to the, to, to the Bahia or the beach. I don't know how many people there were apart from our group, but we were just like one group of many groups. Um, my, my mom, who just for sake of clarity, I always feel like I have to give a disclaimer. The lady I refer to as my mom is technically my ex-stepmom. My mom that was abusive has passed away. But the lady I refer to as my mom was my ex-stepmom. So, so don't think that this lady who showed up was the one that did all the mean stuff to me. I love this lady. She's my mom, and she took, took me in. But not really of a Christian background. And, and it kind of dawned on me, thinking about this, like asking this question, 
like not too long ago, like within five, ten years ago, for me to just be on the beach with the Bible, with a big crowd, with family members there, just to get up and start speaking about the gospel and sharing would have been like terrified. Like I would have done it, but it would have been terrifying. And I kind of like, well, it didn't, like, I wasn't even bothered by it yet. Like, I'm like, I just spoke on the beach. And there was like, I don't even know what was going on down the beach. But there were like a quinceanera or something. Like, all I know is there were like 20 young girls and like screaming. And somebody said, well, you got to be careful going over there because you can smell the pot. You know, it's like, oh, I, so I don't know what was happening over there. I, I don't know. Like, there's just people. And then I just get up and start talking. They didn't even face me. And it'd be easy for me to kind of go, oh, look how great, you know, like, you've come a long way. You'll go. And I'm like, oh, that doesn't really embarrass me anymore. But then I start thinking about little things. Like, I'll be in an environment, like, like getting a meal by myself with a couple of other people that aren't believers. It's not hard to sort of for me to excuse, like, oh, well, I don't need to, like, bow my head and pray. Like, Jesus knows my heart, so I can just put my eyes open. As I mean, it sounds like, thank you, Jesus, for this food. And it's true. Like, I don't, you know. But, but I'm talking about my heart. And I think that there are times when I do that, and it's more of my... Uh, Suddenly, I'm more concerned about the people I'm sitting with and what they think about me than what the Lord thinks. And so I see this story. This is, I, I can't even imagine if I would do something like this. Like a big crowd of people, everybody in town, people from all over the region. You don't know Jesus. You don't even know whose house this is. And you begin cutting a hole in the ceiling to get this guy down. And it's beautiful that Jesus says to the paralytic, take courage, son. I, uh, th- th- this, this word son is a word for child. It's not, doesn't necessarily mean, um, it doesn't necessarily mean like little child. It does indicate sort of that this man was likely younger than Jesus. But it's, it's, it's a warm feeling. As I was talking with Anna through this, I, one of the, like the, she's like, oh, it's like saying mijo. Like if you guys have any Mexican friends, it doesn't matter. Well, like we all are friends with Alberto. Alberto has some boys that are like, they're adults. But you see Alberto, he says, hey, mijo. It's like this warm turn. Like this is like this in, the, in, 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 in Mexican culture. This is mijo. But that, it, it says, take courage. Think about the tear of this paralytic before Jesus. And in the Greek, there are two words for take courage. There's one that implies that there's a real danger, that that your fear is legitimate. Like I imagine your house is on fire. Four rooms back, you know there's a person. And you have to go get the person. Well, there's a word in the Greek that says, take courage. Like, there's legitimate fear, but you buck up, grit your teeth. You just suck it up and you go. Then there's another Greek word that there is nothing to be afraid of. Just relax. It's okay. You don't have anything to be afraid of. That's the word he uses here. And so here's this man that he's laid before Jesus. Jesus says, you don't have anything to be afraid of. Take courage, son. And then he says, your sins are forgiven, past tense. Which is fascinating to me. Like, where were his sins forgiven? 
We know that he had sins. And somewhere between, I think, his going to Jesus and his being at the foot of Jesus and Jesus speaking, somewhere, sometime prior in that action, his sins were forgiven. And um, I don't know what you guys think about this, but for years I've read this story and I think, what a terrible letdown. Like, this is... (laughs) I'm just imagining if I'm paralyzed from the neck down and I go through this great extent to be put at the feet of Jesus and he says, your sins are forgiven. I'd be like, <laughs> great, uh, <laughs> but I have other issues going on here. And um, I, 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 I don't know if that's how we all, like from our perspective, um, we in this day and age and this culture uh, spiritual things and health things are totally divorced in our mind. Uh, ultimately, theologically, from scriptures, any illness, death—it's all because of sin. Like the the reason that our bodies are breaking down, the reason that we die, the reason that we get sick—it's because sin has entered the world in, in a in a broad picture. Um, but during their culture, it was so closely related there's a story in john chapter 9 verses 1 and 2 where the disciples say they come across it says as he passed by he saw a man blind from birth so the disciples are walking with jesus they come across a guy who's blind they know that he's been blind from birth and the disciples ask this innocent question of jesus but it gives insight to how they viewed and how they understood illnesses they said rabbi who sinned This man or his parents that he would be born blind. So they see a blind man and the natural assumption, Jesus doesn't scold them. He even says like, it's neither this, this man was born blind for this very moment that I could heal him so that the world would know who I am. They say, was it his own sin or was it the sin of his parents that caused this? Which is Huge to the story. This man that that suffered with um, uh, paralysis. In my study, the thing that's come up, one of the leading causes uh, of paralysis during that day was from syphilis. We don't know that that's how he was paralyzed, but that's just come up. That the huge percentages of, of people who had paralysis during this day. It was a result of syphilis, and it's very likely that this man went through his life and sort of lived like Job. Well-intentioned. What sin is there in your life? What sin? What's going on? And so I think when we start putting our, ourselves into the story and, and thinking like, man, what a letdown. Jesus says your sins are forgiven. Man, that's anticlimactic. Now, I think that there's ample cause to think that the whole reason that this man is there is to begin be forgiven of his sins, um, to sort of be redeemed by a rabbi, but not knowing what to do. Um, and, and the reality is, is far more than any sort of health issues. Our spiritual condition before God is the greatest problem that we have. And in this story, if his sin and this ailment and these illnesses and everything that we've seen so far We've seen that these things are things that brought these people to Jesus. 
And so in today's world, if you, are su- if you suffer from a, a tragic injury, if you some uh, dying ailment, something happens to you, and it's, God uses that to bring you to him so that you might receive forgiveness of your sins. That's, that is the most important thing. So Jesus says to him, take courage, son, your sins are forgiven. And we read in verse 3, And some of the scribes said to themselves, this fellow blasphemes. So we learned something about the onlookers. We know that in, as Jesus is teaching in this upper room, there are, there are scribes, likely Pharisees, or the religious leaders of the day. It's so easy for us to just be black and white and to, to lump everybody in the same category, but I want you to circle the highlight to whatever. It says, how many of the scribes? All of them? No, it says some. And some of the scribes. So there's a handful of scribes there. And of that handful of scribes, there are some who had concerns in hearing this. In the New American Standard in Matthew, well, I think it's in all of them, in Matthew, the way this, and some of the scribes said to themselves, it's easy to get the impression that there's a group of people Jesus is talking and they say, this guy's blaspheming. But the word for talks to themselves, it's, it's more that inner dialogue that you have in your mind. Uh, if we were to hop over to, to Mark uh, chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, As Mark describes the story, he says, but some of the scribes were sitting there reasoning in their hearts. Why does this man speak that way? He is blaspheming. And who can forgive sins but God alone? So I want us to think a little bit here. It's so easy to get on this bandwagon and condemn people in the scriptures. Oh, these guys are all those scribes. They're just bad guys. I would suggest that some of the scribes, that the some who are reasoning in their hearts that this guy is blaspheming, these guys are good, conservative, Bible-believing guys. Because what they're reasoning in their hearts is correct. This idea that Jesus is blaspheming, from their perspective, they're absolutely correct because only God can forgive sin. And if they're not convinced that Jesus is the Messiah, that he's God, their concern is correct. Lunida, it's a, it's a Greek lexicon that, that kind of defines what we're like, what is blasphemy? Like, like I, blasphemy wasn't even a word that was in my vocabulary growing up. I think it was in a Depeche Mode song as a kid that I knew like something about, bla- but I couldn't tell you what blasphemy was. Lunida says this, so what they're... What they're concerned with, with what Jesus is saying, as he says, your sins are forgiven. They say in one way in which these two Greek words were used, were used in speaking of defaming God, was by claiming some kind of equality with God. Any such statement was regarded by the Jews of biblical times as being harmful and injurious to the nature of God. And so when Jesus says to this man, your sins are forgiven, this is This is capital punishment, sort of violation of the law. That this man, Jesus, from their perception, he just put himself on the same playing field as God. Because nobody, no human has the ability to say your sins are forgiven. You can, somebody wrongs you, you can say that you're sorry that you forgive them for what they did to you. But ultimately, God is the one who forgives sin. And so... They are 
thinking to themselves. This isn't a dialogue they're having with each other. These are the guys who are shepherds of the flock of Israel. They're hearing, they're listening to Jesus. They're hearing his testimony. This guy comes to the roof. He says, your sins are forgiven. And in their heart, there's this pullback. What did he just say? That's blasphemy. I need to get out of this house or I need to take him into custody. There's something that now they have something to do because what he just said was totally wrong if he wasn't God, but he is God. And look at verse four. And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, says or said, why are you thinking evil in your heart? Now, the evil that they were thinking in their heart, I think, is saying we need to put Jesus to death. Like, according to the law, this is a death penalty sort of case. And ultimately, this is why Jesus went to the cross. They were finally able to build a place. I don't know if it's these guys. We don't know how these particular ones responded. But ultimately, the religious leaders of the day were able to build a case against Jesus so that he was put to death because he claimed to be God, which is blasphemy. But Jesus says to them, they're thinking this in their heart. He says, knowing their thoughts, why are you thinking evil in your hearts? That would be terrifying. See, I look at you guys, and for the most part, you know, your eyes are open. I have no idea if you're thinking about, I want Chick-fil-A now because Gunnar mentioned Chick-fil-A. <laughs> but it's closed on Sunday, guys. Like, there's no, like, don't, you know, like, I figured it was safe. A couple weeks ago, I mentioned BLTs, and I had, like, a bunch of text messages with pictures of BLTs. Um, where was I here? I have no idea what you're thinking. I, I, all I can see is your eyes are open. You look like you're paying attention. But for all I know, you're thinking about whatever you're thinking about. You guys have a lot of education. You've been faking teachers for a whole life. You know, I, I, have, I have no idea. And then what you say to me, it could be true. Could, you guys could just be making stuff up. There's no way. But Jesus is God. He knows the hearts of man. She says, hey, guys, why are you thinking evil in your hearts? I am. Um, I don't think he gives them time to respond, but this, this, uh, the evil they're thinking, like denying Jesus as the Messiah, that's one evil they could be thinking. And then putting him to death, that's another evil, putting the Messiah to death. That's, a, that's another concern. And, and then Jesus from there moves into the question, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk. And this is a dilemma. How do they answer this? I mean, Jesus is Lord. He is. He, he knows their hearts. He now he knows their hearts. He created us. There's no way you're going to win an argument with God. And he says, well, what's, what's easier? Say your sins are forgiven or say get up and walk? Well, on one hand, if we're just talking about saying something, it's a whole lot easier to say your sins are forgiven. Because how can he prove it? Your sins are forgiven. Prove that I'm wrong. It's my word against your word. Now, to say get up and walk to a guy who's been paralyzed, that's like that's truly known. I'm not talking about a scam, which like in the faith healing movement, like there's a bunch of scams out there. Like, But this is a guy who's like legitimately paralyzed. And, and in Jesus, what's easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or get up and walk. And they can't really answer this because they know where he's going. Like, he's already healed people. And I just sort of, I wish we had video of this poor guy who's paralyzed. Like, if he can't move, he's laying on the ground. 
on his pallet that he's been lowered in on. He knows his sins are forgiven because Jesus told him his sins are forgiven. Then Jesus starts asking these, these questions. Well, what's easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or that you get up and walk? And I just see the guy's eyes like going, oh, oh. <laughs> is, am I about to be an object lesson for this crowd? This would be like, I don't know if he's crying, if he's praying, like, please, please, please to heal me. But I, like, pe- like people who've been paralyzed for a long time, they, there's a sort of you lose hope. Like, I don't, like, it's not something that you just go from paralysis to being fixed. But I wish I could have, have camera just on this guy's face as Jesus is interacting with these guys. And then Jesus says in verse 6, the, 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 the crux, the, the, the heart, the whole purpose that this whole story even happened, Jesus says, but so that you may know, I want you to know that I have, a th- not me, Jesus, I have authority over sin. Your greatest problem in life is sin. Because God is holy and you are separated with, with him because of your sin. And I want you to know that the Son of Man, the second time Jesus uses it in the Gospel of Matthew, quoting from Daniel, authenticating that he is the Messiah, so that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He says to the paralytic, get up, pick up your bed, and go home. This has nothing to do with the The whole purpose of the healing is to show, to authenticate, that Jesus has authority over sin. The issue is sin. Don't take this and go, oh, I have an illness, and I need, I, like, Jesus cares about our healing. Like, Jesus cares about our healing, and I believe that ultimate healing comes in our, our, our second life as we die and we stand with him. That's his grace. Every person who's ever been healed, and I believe that Jesus heals people, but every single person who's been healed has died. Thank God. That's a good thing. Because in God's graciousness and his mercy, he frees us from this body of sin. And he says, the reason I'm about to do this is that you, you can know with assurance that I have authority over sin. He's already said your sins are forgiven. Now he says, get up and walk. Well, he doesn't say get up and walk. He says, get up, pick up your pallet, and go home. And verse 7. It's so like just plain, but I think it's my favorite verse in this whole section. It says he got up and he went home. Like did the guy like this? We know about the huge crowd. They're, they're piling out to the front door. He came in through the ceiling. I don't get the impression that he went out through the ceiling. And he says, give a walk. Moving his hands for the first time, sitting up, picking up his pallet. See you guys later. You guys can sort this out. I'm going home. Like, did he, like I don't get that there's any drama that he's doing jumping jacks. It's just like he gets up and he goes home. And look at verse 8. But when the crowd saw this, they were awestruck. This word is afraid, like terrified. And glorified God who had given such authority to men. Now, now don't be confused by the plurality of men. I think that's, that here Jesus in his humanity coming to earth, that, that in their presence, that, that they've seen this 
miracle that has never, ever, 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 ever been seen before. Um, Mark 2.12 says, we have never seen anything like this. That when they stood and they watched this, they said, we have never seen anything like this before. Uh, Luke 5.26 says that they were struck with astonishment and began glorifying God. And they were filled with fear saying, we have seen remarkable things today. A few weeks ago, um, I was required to, to go to Palomar Hospital. And I think this is going to be a hard illustration. Like, I think this might be a hard one to communicate, but it's just what's been on my heart like, as I've been thinking about this passage. Um, so most of us go to Palomar Hospital. You walk into the lobby, and there's an elevator there. And the elevator appears to only go up to all of the floors up above. But you can go down one floor at Palomar Hospital. And it's not really advertised. There's not a whole lot of descriptions, but you can go down. And you wouldn't even notice it most times because you're all looking for whatever floor you need to go visit whoever up there. But I had to go to the laboratory to, to, to drop off something. And when you go downstairs, uh, uh, the first floor of, of Palomar Hospital, what's down there is the morgue, a few like behind-the-scenes things. Um, and there's something that's just, it's not pleasant to go down there. Um, you, you go down there, it's like everything within you is like this, I don't like it down here, I don't want to be here, I want to get, I can't even imagine what the people like that work there, you know, like I have not, I remember before the, the hospital was even open, I was able to do a tour with the SWAT team, like not one person had ever been a patient at Palomar. And we went down there and we got a tour of the morgue and they opened up the refrigerator with the trays and we're all kind of looking at each other. Hey, who wants to hop in and get your like, it was a great Facebook profile picture, you know, like you, bunch of SWAT cops. Do you want to know how many people volunteered to get into this refrigerator on the sliding uh, metal bed that's never, ever, ever been used at all? Do you want to know how many volunteers there were? Zero. <laughs> because there's something within us that we don't like death. There's like, we weren't created to death. We weren't able to like experience it. And so the point that I want to try to make is, it's, it might be a hard one. <laughs> the closest feeling that like supernatural and, and things where you know that God is involved, like, the, like when you as a human are faced with death, there's just something not right with it. And so I think that this is my leap, that I think what they were feeling was the exact opposite of what I was feeling, that, that they came close to that feeling, seeing this guy who was paralyzed. When you see somebody with a, a horrific injury, there's something about the human brain that you start thinking like, well, what, like, I'm just still God, it's not me, and I don't even want to get near it because what if it, like, what if I become that? And these people saw this paralyzed guy that Jesus said, your sins are forgiven, and then Jesus says, get up and walk. And the reason that he said that he did that was to show them that he had authority over sin. Powerful. You know, I don't... Okay, let's see. The next story, which we're not going to look at today, says, as Jesus went from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting in a tax collector's booth, and he said to him, follow me, and he got up and followed him. Then we see this whole thing about that Jesus was ostracized for hanging out with sinners. And we read it in this story 
sort of in the third person about this guy, Matthew. But the man who God is using to write this gospel is Matthew. Matthew is writing about himself. He was on the outcast of society. This whole story about Jesus' authority over sin demands a response. And there's no neutral. You either are rejecting Christ's offer of forgiveness or you accept it. And Matthew in his story, he leads to his conversion, what he went through, the, uh, the, the, the beauty of, of what Christ did for him. But Paul in 1 Timothy 1.15 uh, concerning his conversion, uh, relating to all of us, he says this, it is a trustworthy statement deserving of full acceptance. So if there's one message that Paul wants to convey about uh, the history, the history of Jesus. But Paul, this great Pharisee, he says the trustworthy statement that is deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among who I am the foremost of all. This is some rhetorical question, means you don't answer it. But I want you to think about, like, what's your most insignificant sin you know your little white lies sort of sins it's so easy for us to to dismiss those and excuse ourselves but before god those in themselves are condemn us to to eternity separated from god now just start thinking about your worst sin what is like the most shameful terrible thing that you've ever done, whether in your heart or in the, can, how would it be to be exposed? I think that's why most people don't run for politics because they don't want like, to do a lie detector test for any sort of law enforcement. Everything is laid open. And it's a terrible thing. I mean, it's a terrible thing. I'll never forget my first one. And they were like drilling. I'm like, ah, oh, like, you guys, like 1993 to 1996, those were really, really bad years. <laughs> That's where I came to Jesus. Like, I remember like being in this grave room under this lie detector test with this cop just like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, anything else you share in my brain? Like, all of the things. Oh, yeah, yeah, there's one more thing. <laughs> there was this. And they're like, can you hear a chapel? I'm like, yeah, 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 yeah. Like, this all led. This is before Jesus. But Jesus knows it all. There's no hiding from him. He, knowing their thoughts, he knows everything you've thought. He knows your sin nature. And if the scripture says that he does what with our sin? Psalm 103, 12. As far as the east is to the west. And don't think like me and the guy who pushes back. I say, well, well, if you go east to west, you'll eventually come back together. So there is a measurable distance. We're thinking like linear plane into eternity. They never, ever, ever, our brains cannot uh, comprehend this. And how many of you guys have been wondering about this typo behind me? Anybody Google this yet? Nobody Googled it yet? <laughs> Somebody Googled it. I don't know who said that. Okay, so be quiet, whoever said that. So this is a word that I can't say that is a fascinating. In my study this week, I, uh, I learned of missionaries that went to Alaska to um, to reach Eskimos. 
And as they were spending times with the Eskimos and they were trying to, uh, to, to get the New Testament or the Gospels into their language to try to express um, this idea of forgiveness, they came to learn that in the tribal language of, of Eskimos, no word existed for forgiveness. And forgiveness is sort of like a, a key concept in Christianity, like the whole work of the cross. So how do you, as a, as a person that's trying to reach a culture, try to understand in their heart language, how to convey to them what Jesus has done when the word doesn't exist? Uh, th- this has gone in in a lot of the communist nations where the, like for the word God that for, for you know, probably a hundred years now where they've removed all concept of uh, the idea of God and, and any biblical message. And back to Alaska, they stumbled across this word. It's a very long word. Um, I was going to ask a volunteer to read it, but I'll give a... Uh, who? Okay, go ahead. So wait. Anybody want to disagree with that? Sounds good to me. Usu, Maggie, June, whatever, Demit. This is the word that they discovered in the Eskimo language that they used for the concept of forgiveness in their New Testament. And this one word means a phrase in the Eskimo language. And the phrase is not being able to think about it anymore. And it's this beautiful word that really does describe sin. And when we look at this story, take courage, your sins are forgiven. Jesus could say this looking forward to the cross because he was going to pay. And so if you've come to Christ, if you've received his forgiveness... What that means is God is no longer able to think about it anymore as far as the east is from the west. When he sees you in Christ, what he sees is Christ's righteousness, which has been imputed to you. Your sin was placed upon Christ on the cross. And it's overwhelming. And so as we close, this this this. This is Christianity 101. This is the heart of the gospel. That that if you haven't received Christ, Jesus is saying, take courage. Your sins have been forgiven. The only thing you need to do is believe, which really isn't doing anything. It's responding to that which has been done for you. And for those of us who have received this forgiveness, who have been forgiven... There's a demand. It's not, it's not a workspace, but Jesus paid it all, all to him you owe. And we're going to see this unfold in Matthew's life. And so, Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day. We thank you for your word. We, Lord, I thank you for this wonderful story of this paralytic man who had great faith to be brought before Jesus. And to see the wonderful heart of mercy and compassion of our Lord who in the midst of the destruction of the, the, this, the roof being opened up, in the midst of the distraction of this great crowd, to see that our Lord cared most about this man, that he understood the heart, and that he made this mighty proclamation, telling him that his sins have been forgiven. It's something that's hard to understand. And so, Lord, we come before you today. We're grateful for what Jesus did for us. Father, we ask that you would help us to see that 
um, our greatest need in this life is really your forgiveness, your redemption. And so, Father, I pray for those who are unsure, Lord, if they have come to faith in Christ, um, unsure if they're secure with you. Father, I pray that you would help them to see um, that you do have authority over sin, that you paid the penalty for us, and that you offer it freely. And while it makes no sense to us, I just don't understand, Lord, how it could be so simple as believing and trusting that we could be made right with you. And so, Lord, for the rest of us who have come to faith in Christ, who we know you, we pray, Lord, that you would um, strip away things that are holding us back. Lord, increase our faith. Lord, uh, increase our allegiance to you. Uh, Lord, we confess that so often we're uh, compelled by our flesh, compelled by uh, the temptations of this world, overwhelmed by the struggles that we face. And so, Lord, we come to you asking that you would Uh, restore us, encourage us, Lord, help us in our journey with you. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen.